But what we do know is that yesterday, LastPass released the latest in a series of incident disclosures um, about an ongoing attack where an attacker had access to a bunch of cu sensitive customer data that they were able to exfiltrate for about 75 days or two and a half months. You narrowed about a four DevOps engineers? First of all, how do you only have four DevOps engineers? Your last pass, like that's insane. During an incident, there's no blight. There's no shaming people. Anyone could be victim to this. We know that attacks like this are coming and they're growing in severity and we still don't really know. Probably the larger piece of this is we just don't really know what the full impact of this is going to be. Definitely change your passwords, everybody. So we wanted to just hop on and have a little bit of a casual and educational fireside chat about LastPass and the breach and what's going on and also talk about the ramifications for the cybersecurity industry and for professionals at large. Uh, it's a complicated topic um, and we really feel for everyone involved. Um, so thanks for joining us. Uh, please feel free to jump in the comments. We'd love to hear your opinion and thoughts as we go. I'll to keep an eye on the questions and make sure that we're getting to them for our time. Um, but I'm going to start by introducing our miniature panel we have here. Um, we've got Pris uh, Crystal Ponish, Jack Rorig, and Ryan McDonald joining us today. Thank you so much for being here, guys. We're really excited to get your thoughts on this topic. Um, so, Crystal, can you start us out with like a high-level overview of what's happened with LastPass and what makes this breach unique? Yeah, totally. Um, I'll caveat everything I'm about to say with the fact that we are still figuring out everything that's happened. The dust is settling. But what we do know is that yesterday, LastPass released the latest in a series of incident disclosures um, about an ongoing attack where an attacker had access to a bunch of cu sensitive customer data that they were able to exfiltrate for about 75 days or two and a half months. Um, so I guess, honestly, Jack, what lessons should cybersecurity professionals be focusing on from this? Um, and what should we learn from their actions so far? If you're a CISO, remember that you're a CISO. Act quickly and uh, don't uh, let people pressure you into doing things. So when, um, if, if you're managing an incident, uh, we shouldn't have an over-disclosure of incident details being disclosed to the public. Imagine that, that I'm a, a regular customer of LastPass and not some technical security expert. I have no idea what the heck they're talking about in some of their, you know, their incident response and incident releases. And a, a lot of the community in the, uh, a lot of the security community, of course, is, you know, it's like, oh, you've been breached again, right? <laughs> and, and we're kind of like waiting to see just what ridiculous stuff is going to come out of this. But they've been breached over and over again. I think um, they aren't having postmortems where they're effectively enacting change progressively. Uh, if they were having postmortems, they wouldn't. I don't think they'd be making the same mistakes over and over again. It's just, it's it's bizarre, isn't it, right? Like we have all of these security incidents over at LastPass, and then there's another simple one. But um, for your own, like, personal uh, firm, right, where you're working right now, if you used LastPass, I think the first thing you should have done is immediately expired everybody's password, right? And that's a theme of what you should do as a CISO for everything else. You own that. You're an officer of the company. You have personal liability associated with that. And people should, you know, people might complain about having their passwords reset, but if it becomes a regular thing, it's going to be something that's more comfortable for people. And uh, it, it's definitely something that I think it, it, was, it would have been wise to do. There's a ton of other things. We, we, we dropped a fact about this, um, about things you can learn. But really, 
I, I would take a look at it and try and pretend that uh, your different personas were involved in this breach, right? Like you're a user who's non-technical or you're a user who's a, a middle school student. Think of things like that and see if their response, their reaction, the way they handled it was appropriate. Crystal, what's your kind of hot take when it comes to uh, what we should be really focusing on? Like why, what is so different about this breach? What's severe about it? What are the takeaways? I think honestly, after looking at the way the attackers moved, this wasn't a moonshot in terms of the tactics, techniques, and procedures they used. But what I think they did really well is exploit the gaps um, between people, processes, and technology. Because when we talk about security, it's all three of those things, right? It's a balance, right? If users don't want to reset their passwords because security is painful, then what can a CISO realistically do? I mean, you can enforce those things, but you're constantly balancing those three things. So I think Ryan probably has some good points on this. I know we've talked a lot about what that means to respond and to unify those three people, processes, and technology. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think that there's a lot to criticize in this, that there's potentially a lot that we can learn about what they've done wrong. And I'll call out one thing, and then I'll, I'll shift gears just a bit. But for me, as someone who is not a dedicated security professional, um, the communication that I've seen lately is is heartening. Like for me, the the, the level of transparency like in, it inspires me to some extent. Of like, great, these folks actually understood what was happening. They are describing the steps that they're taking. And I know Jackie mentioned that that felt like a degree of over disclosure for you from a security perspective. But as a as a former customer of LastPass, for me, if I'd have seen this a month ago, or I mean, and obviously there's. There's a lot that goes into investigating issues like this and, and breaches like this. But if I'd have seen this with any kind of um, earlier cadence, I would be much more inclined to still be a LastPass customer and less inclined to have cycled off of their product. Um, that said, like I think, Crystal, you mentioned this notion of people process um, and technology all coming together to help um, organizations tackle these kinds of problems. And the thing that pops out to me um, on some level is that you're always trying to balance like speed and efficacy with which people are doing their work with um, security, right? Like trying to to balance those concerns in a way that makes sense for organizations so that they can, people can continue to do work that they need to, to advance the product, deliver new features, ensure that things are up all the time, right? Uh, but you also have to balance that with security. Feels like sometimes you can you can productize parts of security though, right? There there's there are neat techniques that you can use, and people can can hit me up about this if they're curious to align security with product so that that it, it doesn't interfere. But right, I agree with you one hundred percent. Right, and and I guess like calling out some of the things that it seems like went well or th like patterns that felt good to me to read about where things like there are only four DevOps engineers in the entire organization that have access to these types of things, which is which is great and feels like a good measure. I think the thing that's fascinating to me is that it's easy to point at security issues and say, like, we need better tooling, right? We need, like, bigger analytics. We need something. But at the end of the day, it's like, if these four people just had, like, some block and tackle process, right? Something that slowed them down, something that, like, their actions were being analyzed on a more regular basis, that feels like kind of an interesting and obvious learning to me. It's not like you have to scan every customer or every employee, right? You have four people, right, that have access right. to things. 
think, think, think about data classification, right? Like these are four people who have access to this data, who don't need access to the data, right? I mean, they might need access to be able to transport the data or, or give the data to somebody else. But if you, if you look at, you know, what segregation of duties and, and data classification, uh, I think the, it's, it, it, that's a really interesting thing to think about here. You narrowed about a four DevOps engineers. First of all, how do you only have four DevOps engineers your last pass? Like, that's insane. Um, I think but, it was they had more and they had four that had access, which for me is like, that's commendable, right? Instead of saying that, all of DevOps need access to all of this data. So, like, they've done some segregation already. Yeah, just, I'm thinking role-based, you know, role-based segregation of duties, right? I, that is something that they're clearly missing in the the whole LastPass organization. Um, the, what, the, a good example of that is, you know, you were talking about the release of the incident statements. I think that um, they could they could have done the same thing but had somebody in their PR department write, write it and maybe smooth out some of the technical details because, the, the you know, I, there are, it, it, one could argue that they're a tech company who have tech customers and therefore they should have tech technologically uh, verbose incident response reports. They're not a company that sells quilts, right? Um, but I don't know. I think the SOD is, SOD and data classification are missing at almost every every firm that I've, I've consulted with. I want to add on something to that, which is once you do have that data classification, you do have roles properly assigned, say you're using least privilege and you're, you're using all of your layers of defense in depth appropriately. Um, something that stood out to me as well was that this was not the most sophisticated attack, but it was um, it was a hop, 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 right? So they exploited a vulnerability in a, in a vulnerable software package in the software supply chain. They then installed malicious, like malware, keylogging malware onto the developer laptop. Then from there, they hopped to AWS. And from, you know, so it's this, you need anomaly detection to be able to determine like, okay, this person might have valid credentials, but they're logging in from a laptop I've never seen them log in from before. And they're trying to access things that they shouldn't access. Um, and so I also see that gap. And when I talk about people, process, and technology, some of that is right now, the industry is so siloed. Um, or maybe there's two silos, really, between kind of endpoints and cloud native. And I think that gap there and how we bridge that and how we get that visibility to everybody in the organization so they understand that a threat is happening and it's not just it's not just happening on their endpoint. Um, or their laptop, and it's not just happening in a container, right? It's it's happening across attack vectors, um, and you need to be able to detect, see those anomalies across the board. And maybe if it didn't happen in a container, maybe the, the, that's just one like like uh, link in the chain, and the hacker will find some other vulnerability to replace for that container. But uh, yeah, I totally agree with you, Crystal. Uh, when it comes to anomaly detection and the need for that in many different circumstances. Um, let's also talk about the uh, the developer laptop as a crown jewel. Uh, what's what's so different about this? How can people be focusing on that and protecting it? Well, I'm, I'm curious about what Ryan and Jack think, honestly, just because I think this hits in that sweet spot of the balance of security, right? So how do you secure a developer laptop or developer devices in ways that people are comfortable with that still balances that speed and agility so I don't know that I have a ton to contribute. I mostly just want to hear, I guess, what you guys think. Well, I know I know Ryan has a lot of experience with this, right? Like with, with the interaction of developers and security. And Ryan, I want to ask you a question that's kind of like related to this. Have you ever herded cats? Like a herd of kittens? 
Um, <laughs> yes, literally and and figuratively, yes, as as both my job, I would say, as an incident commander and recovering uh, engineering process manager, that that is the majority of of my professional career at this point. So, so how did you get engineers to follow your you know MDM policies, for example? I mean, I think at the end of the day, anytime that you have a policy or a procedure that you're attempting to enact at an organization, you need to convince people that it's in their best interest, right? You have to incentivize them to to get on board because it's it's exceptionally easy oftentimes to just not leverage like the tools or the processes or or any of the like good work that security folks or anyone else in the organization is trying to do for folks. You have to get buy-in. You have to have as much internal marketing oftentimes as anything else so that people don't just understand that this stuff exists but like why it exists and why it's helpful. Like oftentimes you're dealing with engineers and they're hypercritical, right? These are folks that like need to know the why behind everything. Like they're second in line to three-year-olds in terms of the, the yeah. but why, but why, right? So if you don't address that, you're sunk. You're not, you're not gonna have people actually adopt the things that you're trying to get them to, right? And you can, you can make bigger moats Bigger moats, right? Bigger walls, deeper moats, whatever, right? But at the end of the day, you're, you're talking about humans and compliance is something that like they have to agree to. So that's my take. I love compliance. I absolutely love it. Um, and all of my CISO buddies make fun of me for it because uh, they don't love it for whatever reason. Uh, I think that the reason why I love it and, and they don't love it is because they read examples of of controls that a, a SOC auditor might provide and say, well, here's an example of the control uh, for your backups. Just take all of a, a bunch of CDR drives, you know, compact disk recorders and put those in uh, your AIX mainframes. <laughs> like this is like way out of touch, right? The CISOs don't realize that they can write their own controls. Um, and those controls are um, observable and they're, they're to be audited, you know, continuously or yearly, depending on what kind of um, certification one is trying to acquire. And those uh, the audits can vary wildly from like cyber essentials, which is where they pretty much just take your word for it, uh, or like a you know SOC 2 type 2 with uh, PricewaterhouseCooper, where they ask you a million questions and it, and it takes forever and you have to submit a ton of evidence. Um, the, the theme here, though, is it's, it's that whole, like, how do you get the, the leverage we need the, the certification for something, right? Usually it's for customer acquisition. Customer acquisition is the crown jewels of the company for, you know, I think it's like, how, wait, more money? Yeah, that's what we're here to do. Um, so if some, if you need a SOC compliance, for example, or if you need FedRAMP, um, that's like a huge priority. And so if you, all you get, if, as a CISO, if you can, can, if you can build your own custom control framework that um, covers developer laptops, for example, then you can tie your enforcement of the developer laptop security to one of the top business priorities. Um, and I worked at a company recently where we had security was like the, it was literally with the, the CEO went up and in this presentation, security was the number one uh, KPI, the number one goal, the number one objective for an entire year. Um, it, and it was, um, it wasn't because we had had breaches or incidents. It was because we had said, you know, already acquired every customer that we could and the rest of them, we, we wanted to get 
through satisfying international regulatory compliance for data privacy as uh, as it applies to government regulated uh, institutions and, and universities. I think the to keep it high level here, it's clear that human error isn't going anywhere. It's clear that compliance is going to keep changing and that writing your controls is certainly a part of that. Um, but for a lot of organizations who are responding to this right now with a lot of fear, knowing that breaches are going to continue to happen, it's not really a matter of of when, but if. I think we all know that at this point. So how can organizations make sure or at least help themselves to not be super scrambling when this does happen? Ryan, I'd love to get your perspective on that. I guess I'm just going to hop in really quick and and take, take issue with one of the terms that you use, this notion of human right. error. In this case, in reading through uh, everything that's been made publicly available, for me, these are failures in systems. These are failures in how people are able to go and do their jobs on a daily basis, as opposed to like a individual who pushed a wrong button or left their laptop at McDonald's or something. We like make that, right? mistakes, right? We're you, and that's what we're supposed we need to, to do. An- we need to anticipate the fact that humans, when they're operating systems, if the systems aren't designed well or onerous or whatever, that people are are going to make is- have issues. They're going to, to make issues, right? Like that, it's an error human at the end of the day, right? So, and I'll call it one other thing and I'll get back to your, your main point, but I, um, I appreciate the question. Great, great. The, I really appreciated that all of the description of, of how they sort of like handled these, because both incidents involved laptops and home networks that were compromised in some form or fashion. And and in no case did they say, we've summarily fired both of these employees. This will never happen again. Congratulations. Good job, everybody. Right? Um, I think it is absolutely much more about, like they they had explicit language about, hey, they've come in and they've hardened these, these employees, like personal home networks, right? And they've like supported them in this as opposed to showing them before, which I think is huge. I think that's knee-jerk, to be honest, like the hardening of their own networks. I think that's kind of one of those knee-jerk. So, right, because if you look at the whole risk environment, it's like just because this happened recently doesn't mean that it's called recency bias, right? Just because it happened recently doesn't mean it is one of the highest risks that we need to tackle. Anyways. Totally. I mean, I think it's a feel-good, but I guess I see other... Like, for example, if this happened in the financial space, they literally would have been like, we have removed this contractor employee, like they're gone. And now suddenly everything's going to be okay, right? And I think that like having that narrative shift, at least in in public incident language for me is like interesting and important. And part of us acknowledging that like we're operating complex systems, we have people that are aggressively trying to break into these systems. So it's not like we just don't get to have security incidents. They're going to happen. It's about our response. It's about, you know, thinking about how these people engage uh, in, in their work. So, Yeah, I, I, I think the mistakes that people make, right, that's what sets us aside from the computers that we operate. The systems that we're running, our, our infrastructure, production infrastructure is, is predictable. It doesn't make mistakes. I mean, sure, there's a, you know, I guess you could have not enough error uh, control correction in your memory and there's too much radiation in your data center and, uh, you know, electron pops off and all, all of a sudden your data corrupt in memory. But the reality is humans make mistakes. We learn from those mistakes. That's how we grow. We're smarter than machines and we have creativity. And I, I think our creativity comes 
from our ability to, to fail and recover. And I've had, you know, uh, Ryan, I did a lot of incident commanding and, and read a lot of incident processes. And this is where this always comes up for me is during an incident, there's no blame, you know, the, there's no shaming people. Um, people are going to make these mistakes. It's going to happen. Right. And, uh, I, I encourage it, honestly. I, I just don't, I want to, there's one thing though that I don't want to see. I don't want to see somebody make the same mistake over and over and over again without learning from it. That was my ideas. But yeah, I, I really like, really like that you, you picked up on that, Ryan, because I, I was actually talking to a friend last night too about that. And I was talking about how, you know, I, I was describing a much greater thing about shame versus guilt, right? This, this like psychological phenomenon. And I was using the incident commander process as a oh, not the own example, and I just realized what dork I am. Um, sorry, I just wanted. Do you mind if I? I just wanted to say I think there's this really kind of funny security. Well, not funny, and I'm sure not funny to you, Jack. The security saying right, which is that the CISO is ablative, and I think that in general the security team we that's what y'all are talking about is treated as ablative, like or whoever messes up gets fired so again just to rehash this blameless culture like it's not the individual person's fault it, you can fire somebody and then there's probably someone else in the company making the same kind of mistakes so i think you guys just really hit the nail on the head wonderfully great um well we are at the end of our time um so we're going to wrap up uh we've got some amazing comments coming in on linkedin uh, just to let you know, we are seeing those and we'd love to address them also in future correspondence with you. Please keep us um, top of mind when it comes to being on LinkedIn and Twitter. We have plenty of information coming out. Um, please also follow our our panelists here. Crystal, Jack, and Ryan are all on LinkedIn and they'd be happy to connect with you. Um, keep an eye on the Upsix blog. We have more information coming out about this and we'd love to answer some of your questions in future blog posts as well. Um, guys, if there are, you have any last minute thoughts you want to share, anything you feel like you uh, didn't get a chance to say in this live? I would just share that, um, honestly, I think anyone could be victim to this. We know that attacks like this are coming and they're growing in severity and we still don't really know. And probably the larger piece of this is we just don't really know what the full impact of this is going to be. Um, so stay in tune to it and understand that no one's above the risk um, and definitely change your passwords, everybody. Change all of your passwords. And, you know, if they had some sort of uh, XDR, uh, like, we, you know, they could literally trace everything that's going on, something that produced a lot of metrics in their environment, um, you probably could have got ahead of this. I don't know of a company that's the absolute best in this that's ever existed, but um, there's a, there's a, I'm sure there's a good one out there. We'll save that recommendation for another time. Love it. Okay. Thank you so much, everyone. Appreciate you joining us on LinkedIn and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.